Welcome to this week's Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, this week we had a very interesting conversation with Catherine Lockhart from Propel about entrepreneurship in the region, particularly tech entrepreneurship. And I just wanted to start our conversation today by telling you that I think we might be having a challenge around entrepreneurship in our region. If you look at the number of new entrants, new business startups every year in the across the four Atlantic provinces, uh, they are down significantly over the last 15 years. In New Brunswick, the number that start up every year is down 34%. In Nova Scotia, it's down 24%. And in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's down 37%. The only province in the region where the entrance rate is the same over the last 15 years has been PEI. And I think you and I uh, probably have a good idea of why that would be. But I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I think we are really at a, a crossroads here in terms of uh, uh, entrepreneurship in this region. Well, uh, you know, I, David, we talked about this before, but I, I think it starts with the school system. Uh, you know, we are not, uh, we are not uh, showing uh, our students the opportunity uh, of running your own business as, as an option. It, it, it's, you know, it's just, it's really not there. And, uh, and so I think that this is the starting point. Uh, I mentioned in our interview uh, with Catherine that I'd done a study for AAU uh, a, a couple of years ago where we surveyed uh, gra- graduating students uh, who were Canadian from universities and international students. We asked them their interest in starting a business. And uh, it, it was very, very low for, for um, Canadian, you know, it, you know born uh, students. Uh, it was a single digit number. International students were at five times more likely and interested in starting their own business. That says it all, doesn't it? I mean, you know, it, it just isn't a, a life choice for our kids coming out of high school. And, uh, and so I think that that's one of the challenges that we face in, in this region. And, and the good news, the good news is that, uh, you know, as Catherine's pointed out, we have a lot of organizations now in place across the region to support startups. You know, the interest seems to be mainly on, on the tech side for organizations like Propel. But nonetheless, I mean, there is a support system in place that will mean the likelihood of su- succeeding will, will be higher. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, when I started my business, there were no such organization. It was, you know, trial and error and hope for the best. Now there's a much better possibility of uh, making it because of the organizations like Propel. And, you know, this is an area that's only been around, I, you know, Propel was started 20 years ago. It hasn't been around that long and it takes a while for it to kind of get traction. But now I think we have the infrastructure in place, don't you? to make sure that if you have an interest in starting a business, whether you're Canadian born or born from another country, you can get the kind of support systems in place that increase your uh, chances of success. Yeah, for sure. Certainly in the tech sector space. I mean, I was surprised that she said 90%, her estimation, 90% of all tech startups use one of these, not just Propel, but one of these incubators or accelerators in the course of their journey. So that's pretty good in terms of, uh, of of access. I do think there's other sectors, you know, and and she did talk about some of the other sectors and other other incubators, and so I think the listeners will appreciate that. But I do think that you know there's a there's a we want to as much as possible we want to make sure that a broad base of entrepreneurs across all sectors have access to this kind of support because again we want to be one of the best places in North America I think to start a business. 
And then that should help us rejuvenate the entrepreneurial spirit in the region, because as you say, we're just not seeing it and we're not seeing it in the schools. We are seeing it among the newcomers, which is very, very interesting. Yeah, I'm encouraged, however. I mean, you know, uh, if you talk to uh, uh, incubators and accelerators like Propel or Volta in Halifax or Startup uh, Zone in St. John, there's lots of good work being done. And, and you know, they all talk about the, what's going on, that uh, that they, they see lots of encouragement. And, you know, our recent uh, conversation with John Risley, you know, talked about the ocean industries. And, and that's another area where there's a lot of really good stuff happening. So I think what we're seeing, David, is a change in the, in the, in the, in the type of economy that we have and where the entrepreneurial uh, interest will be. I mean, it, it's, the new, it's the new economy, it's, uh, you know, that's really driving entrepreneurism, as it should, I think. And I'm really personally encouraged. And the, and the story that Catherine uh, told us uh, just gives me more confidence that we're on the right track. Yeah, she's very charismatic and articulate in terms of her her knowledge and understanding of the issues. I think she's the right person at the right time to run that organization. And I'm, I'm very excited about what they're going to be doing and they're doing right now. Uh, and I think the tech sector is well positioned for growth, assuming, and this is a big assumption, we can fix the talent pipeline because companies, tech companies across the region are, are complaining that they can't retain, hire and retain the talent that they need in the region. The Googles are coming in, the Facebooks are coming in, the big global players are raiding some of the top talent in this region. So we've got to solve that, I think, find a way to solve that talent pipeline problem. Yeah, and and she brought up a really important point, uh, one that our governments really need to think about. it, it, you know, it's it's time for us to really make sure that we have the necessary infrastructure in place. And I'm not just talking about physical infrastructure, but I'm talking about things like having a doctor available for you, or at least access to primary care. Maybe not in the, you know, the the way that we've had it in the past, where you have your own doctor, but at least a practice where you can go to and access a doctor when you need it. You know, those are really important infrastructure issues that need to be resolved. Because guess what? People would like to live here. We, we see it now every day. People are, have found out that Atlantic Canada is one of the preferred places to live in Canada. Let's be honest. And, and so if we can fix those infrastructure requirements, I think it's just going to, we're going to get a flood of people who, who figure out, you know, that they can have better balance of life living in Atlantic Canada than almost anywhere in the country. Yep. Fully agree with that. So um, on that note, Don, let's, uh, let's listen to our conversation with, uh, with uh, Catherine Lockhart, CEO of Propel uh, uh, Inc. Catherine, welcome back to the Insights Podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So right out of the gate, I wanted to ask you, what is Propel and when did it get started? Propel is a virtual tech-focused Atlantic-based accelerator. Um, how it got started and when it got started is, is quite impressive. We started almost 20 years ago. So in August, uh, it was founded 20 years ago, originally with roots in New Brunswick. Um, and the intention was to support a non-resourced based sector where tech companies could be supported and potentially scale beyond our, at the time, New Brunswick borders. And now it's certainly our, all of our Atlantic Canadian borders. Um, obviously, we are very resourced based um, economy in, in the entire region and sort of came out of the MBTEL days with Jerry Pond recognizing if we're going to dip into the tech space, let's support that by setting up an organization that 
really helps nourish and, and nurture the, the founders that are going to take that plunge. So that was the original idea. And it's evolved, started off as a bit of a mentorship model. It's evolved over time, uh, becoming virtual under the leadership of Barry Bison in 2018. So we were virtual before it was cool to be virtual. <laughs> a lot of people are virtual now. Um, and now we're able to support companies all over Atlantic Canada. So we wanted to bring you back today to do a deeper dive on the role of these incubators and accelerators uh, to help foster a strong economy in Atlantic Canada. Can you define for us what the difference is between those? So what is a business incubator and what is a business accelerator? Sure thing. There, I will say the lines are very blurry, <laughs> uh, which is which is a good thing. And I'll and folks listening might you know their opinions may even defer, but I'll certainly take a stab at it. So from an incubator perspective, there's often a physical space involved where entrepreneurs can go and take meetings and hire folks and set up shop for a few hours a day or even longer. There would be sort of an open-ended duration to their access to a space that may be paid on a monthly basis, that kind of thing. An accelerator may be a little bit more focused on high growth-based companies um, there would be typically a cohort model involved with a lot of accelerators. So you step into the accelerator programming or journey with other founders like you at a similar stage in your journey. So you're learning, learning and struggling together. Um, there's very different models in terms of those who take equity and what they charge or don't charge. That's that varies is all over the map, really. But they really overlap in that they're all focused on supporting entrepreneurs and their development providing services for that. So let's talk a little bit about the case for these services, uh, Catherine. Uh, they, they clearly didn't exist, uh, certainly mostly you know, 20 years ago for sure, and yet entrepreneurs still managed to start and grow businesses across the region. So if, if we were to take a look at, say, the top 30 tech startups in Atlantic Canada right now, what share do you think assess one or more of these services? What's the percentage? So anecdotally, I think it's a really interesting question. Anecdotally, I would say more than 90% of first-time entrepreneurs have accessed one of these services in our region. It doesn't mean they all have. There's wonderful success stories of those. You know, I think of Jody Glidden from Interhive. He comes to mind. I don't think he mm -hmm. was an accelerator baby, if you will. Um, but it doesn't mean, you know, it's a very difficult journey. And sometimes I think about it like, infants, the first two years of an infant's life are incredibly important for their overall development. And the same goes for founders. So the first two years, the first several years of a founder's journey are really, really important. So though, you know, incubators and accelerators were not a dominant part of our economy 20 years ago, you know, it's when Propel was born, but it wasn't dominant in the area. Um, entrepreneurs had a very tough journey. They learned by trial and error, trial and error, and trial and error. So the more we can de-risk that journey and nurture someone who puts up their hand to be a founder, the more successful they're going to be. And I truly think about founders as the economic birth rate of our region. You know, we often look at a region and, and especially our region where we've got an aging demographic and the very common narrative is we've got an aging demographic. So what's our birth rate? Okay, it's not so great. So what's the immigration policy and, and what, what do those numbers look like, which is important. And, and that still needs to be an, an important focus and effort for all of us. But there are generational shifts that we will eventually benefit from in building our economy. 
But if you look at a founder, if someone puts up their hand and says, I'm going to be a founder, I think we should roll out the red carpet for them. Their potential economic impact of a successful founder is a three to five year window, not a generational window. And there's a lot of opportunity to really nurture this high risk career move. It's already a very high risk career move. They've already said, okay, I'm going to take the leap. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of ambiguity. You don't know where you're, if you're going to get your, be able to pay yourself or pay your staff in six weeks. That's a very common occurrence. But the more we can nurture these folks, the better off they're, they're going to be. And if you compare it, and this is maybe an extreme analogy, if you compare it to other professions, you know, it, it will be like saying to a physician, if you want to be a doctor, go and talk to a lot of doctors and see how it works. There's a lot of great YouTube videos. Watch those and it'll be okay. <laughs> we don't want we don't want founders swimming around trying to figure it out, you know, watching YouTube channels. We want to nurture that very deliberately. So the presence of incubators and accelerators in this region is a very important one. Uh, could I just jump in, uh, you know, with my own experience because... <laughs> You know, it was a long time ago, Catherine, well before you were born. <laughs> and um, I didn't have any, I didn't have any go-to. Uh, uh, you know, I started a, a business where there was no, there were no other companies in my industry in, mm-hmm. in this region. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was all trial and error. <laughs> you know, we were learning it, at, we made it up as we went, frankly. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was, it was challenging because we had nobody to talk to. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, uh, uh, ended up creating through a couple of companies, 600 jobs that are still in existence in Atlanta, mm-hmm. Canada. And I'm very proud of that fact, but like, I, it might've been easier to have, you know, some other people going through the same thing at the same time. And in fact, by the way, as a result of that experience, uh, I personally have mentored a, a number of young entrepreneurs mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, it, you gave you give them a shortcut. That's what you do. You give them a shortcut. You you, you reduce the learning curve. You 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 start to eliminate mistakes that are unnecessary. You know, and mm-hmm. I think that I'm sure you still Propel still provides a lot of mentorship through its programming. I'm I'm pretty sure because it's so important, right? We do, and and the commentary is is so welcome, Don, because you know hearing about your journey and doing it alone. That is one of the sort of intrinsic models that we always talk about at Propel. This journey should not be done alone because it is so volatile. It is so full of ambiguity and ups and downs. And, you know, we're very deliberate within our programming to try and de-risk the journey and support it. The first part of our programming, for example, it's a program called Vision and Validation. By the end of it, we try and teach founders how to validate that there's a problem in the market that someone is actually willing to pay to solve. You know, and in Canada, we're inherently nice and friendly and we all get excited when somebody's starting a company, but support is not writing checks. And we've got to use data to help a founder make decisions on pursuing a market, not a hunch and excitement. Excitement is really great, but it's not actual progress. So that's the intention of our, the first part of our, our program. The second stage of our program, which is a bit later, it's called traction and growth, very deliberately called traction and growth where founders work with our dedicated coaches and they are working up to 16 hours a month with our dedicated coaches who these coaches sort of join their journey. And it's about the founder, not about a one size fits all experience where we don't really, that's not how we roll at Propel. It's very curated to what the founder needs support in. 
they work on identifying their ideal customer profile, which simply means who in the market needs your solution now? Who has the most pain? You know, we have a partner at GrowthX and they talk about it as you have to find not Mr. or Mrs. Right, it's Mr. or Mrs. Right now. Uh, and once they identify that, then we see the magic happen. And by magic, I mean, that's when we see the business metrics start to make sense. So their sales cycle shorten, their contract values go up. They're able to hire because they're earning revenue from a repeatable and scalable market. And we spend the last six months of their journey in the growth section focused on building the sales skills. I mean, entrepreneurs need to know how to sell. It is so, so critical. They're selling to potential customers. They're selling to potential hires. They're selling to potential investors. And so we really spend a lot of time with founders honing that skill. So, you know, back to your comment on really doing the trial and error approach. It absolutely can be done. You're, you're certainly living proof of that. And the 600 job, you know, creation that's come out of it is incredibly valuable. But we'd love to see more and more people have access to that leadership and impact in our region. And we're hoping that, you know, all of our, not just Propel, all of our collective efforts in this ecosystem will lend itself to that growth. Well, Don, the 1940s was a different time. <laughs> you know. uh, just Thank you, kidding. Thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> Catherine, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the revenue model for Propel. Can you give us a rough breakdown of where you get your revenue by source? Certainly. So what, what I can say is that we are predominantly publicly funded by the four provincial governments, and, and a good chunk of our funding comes from ACOA, so the federal government. Um, I would say the breakup, the breakdown uh, between the provincial governments very much is representative of the population, so size-wise. And, and we're happy to say that even our own team is spread across all of the provinces, as well as the founders we serve. So it really is a true pan-Atlantic operation. Um, and we have several corporate sponsors that support special events like the Jerry Pond Sales Award that we just had. So a little bit of corporate sponsorship. And we're also exploring um, the opportunity to um, attract private revenue. So something that I'm very interested in, and you have to sort of prove that there's an ROI value to our programming. So exploring that, that will predominantly come from outside of Atlantic Canada, because our anchor is truly here. Um, our goal will never be to expand and become a global um, accelerator while abandoning the mandate in Atlantic Canada. We will always hold true and protect that. But there's other examples in the world, you know, in Tel Aviv, for example, where they have an incredible tech ecosystem and a lot of their incubators and accelerators have been privatized. So we're watching some of the best ecosystems in the world to understand that shift. They're a little more advanced than we are, but it doesn't mean we can't get there. So we're certainly looking at, at ways to evolve, you know, our own revenue model. So because there and there has to be, um, I, I believe there has to be government spending at the early, early stages for the founder journey because they do not have money. Um, it's not something that can be paid for on their own. It, it needs to be supported. And the government here does a very good job at that. Uh, Catherine, I just wanted to follow up on something you mentioned earlier because I, <clears throat> I think it's, uh, it's worth repeating. You talked about the importance of sales. Uh, you know, again, from my own personal experience, the, I think the first job I had coming out of university was a sales job. And by the way, I hated it. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I actually decided I better go back and get more education. But it was probably one of the best uh, training um, experiences that I had. I used that 
you know, that experience throughout my career. And, you know, a great idea is only as good as how good you are at selling that idea. And I just want to emphasize how important it is for entrepreneurs to really either, if they don't have that skill, find that skill uh, because it's critical to success. So I, a little bit of a editorial there, but it was a really important point that I wanted to emphasize. Uh, let, let me just ask you, do you take a stake in the startups that you support or just facilitate relationships with other capital providers? A lot of accelerators do, you know, the, the larger, more famous ones like Y Combinator, there's an equity sort of transfer in that, those agreements. We do not take equity at all. Uh, we also don't give upfront cash. Other accelerators do that. We are truly focused on developing the founder and their skills and empowering them. It's sort of like teaching someone to fish, they'll fish for life um, kind, of, kind of mentality. We have partnerships with an MBIF and Innova Corp for a 50K safe that founders have the opportunity to um, apply for and work towards. I think it's important to note that we have very deliberate and very good relationships with the investors, particularly in our region and beyond. And we make sure that founders are earning the right to speak to them. Um, if, you know, we see a lot of founders who are not, you know, they're very new in their, in their journey and they feel like a great idea deserves cash. And that's just not how it works. And we have to protect what is put in front of investors so their time is spent wisely. And it's harder and harder. And, you know, every six months you can actually speak to the needle has been moving up and up. Sort of gone are the days where you have a great idea that's built in your garage and somebody writes you a couple million dollars uh, to, to put behind it. That's not how it works. It's much more expensive to get a startup off the ground. So we are focused on developing the right skills, gaining the right traction that is that, you know, our coaches really screen hard. They say, OK, this founder has come a long way. They've proven there's a market that someone is willing to pay for. They've landed some early traction. They can demonstrate to an investor that they're going to use their cash wisely, hire a specific skill set, and start to grow this business. Now, uh, are there a specific sectors uh, in your space that you're focusing on that you're seeing the real, you know, maybe a higher potential for growth? Um, no, because our tech sector is very, very broad. So right. we're not niche yeah. in any way other than it needs to be in the tech sector. And I would suggest the tech sector is broader now than it's ever been. Certainly 12 years mm. ago, 10 years ago, you know, technology would have a certain, you, you would picture a certain number of organizations that would fall into that space. Let me give you a sample of some of the industries our current cohort touches. They are in the Tech, technology-driven um, companies solving problems in the transportation space, real estate, legal, insurance, cloud infrastructure, ag tech, food, fintech, construction, <laughs> lots of ed tech, health, HR. So basically any industry has a technical component to modernizing it. The only things we put the brakes on a little bit is if it's a heavy regulated industry like med tech that really requires sort of a different approach and methodic um, discipline around, you know, it takes so much time to get to market. There's a lot of work with the FDA, clinical trials. Um, that's not our expertise. We really live in the go-to-market space. So how do we get these companies into the market, validate that there's a market, how do they sell into that market, and how do they expand into that market? 
Yeah, I, I noticed that you didn't mention ocean industries. We we recently had John Risley on, who's the chair of the Canada Supercluster, um, and uh, very interesting conversation. If you haven't already heard it, um, and we know that there's a fair amount of technology uh, and tech work being done in that sector. Are, are you seeing that in, in 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 your client list as well? I wish, honestly, um, I wish we were seeing more of it. A lot of the work, certainly from my understanding, I may have this um, slightly wrong, a lot of the work in the ocean space, there's a lot of heavy R&D to it. So they're not necessarily ready for market. When those companies are ready to go to market, that's when it's a perfect time to introduce Propel programming to those founders. So I'm really hopeful we're going to see more of it. The more the ocean supercluster funding continues its sort of momentum and we're seeing companies come out that are saying, look, I've proven this, the research is ready to go. It's, you know, been approved on the global level and in lots, however it's done. But when they're really ready to sell and go to market, that's where we'd like to be supportive of that, uh, that part of our ecosystem and that journey, especially for the founders to develop those skills. We've had a few, we've had a few like real data, you know, as a land-based fish farm, for example. So it touches uh, the ocean sector, if you will. But we'd like to see more of that because there, there's not a, we haven't seen the ocean investments come full cycle through to sort of right. our programming yet. So Catherine, I don't know how public the list of companies you work with are, but we did want to ask you if you had a few examples of firms that you maybe are working with now or that you have worked with that you think look very promising. Uh, absolutely. And I wish we had all day to talk about the founders because they are the most important part of what we do. And it's really the problems that they're solving and the journeys that they've been on that gets us out of bed every day. Um, so I'll definitely list a few. So Passive, who has been a recent, um, uh, they've recently been accepted to Y Combinator. Real Data, there's been a recent announcement for 500k funding for them. Stemble Learning at a PEI, they've just won the Jerry Pond Sales Award. Renderator and Room Crew, who were uh, finalists for the Jerry Pond Sales Award. Oliver POS had previously won the Jerry Pond Sales Award. Milk Movement has been in the news a lot, doing really, really well, solving you know dairy supply chain challenges. Currently in our cohorts, we've got um, a new Canadian running an op- uh, organization called Paytech. There's one from Up360. He, this is an organization in Prince Edward Island run by what we call fondly call a COVID refugee. So relocated from Toronto to PEI and it was too beautiful to go back. Quick Facts, everybody should watch Quick Facts run by a superstar female founder named Christy. Uh, She's gonna really do great things. Easy Platter uh, in the food space, company called Trellent. Like I could go on and on and on, but there's a fantastic, very, very strong group of founders that that were fortunate enough to support their journeys. And uh, yeah, it's they're worth they're worth watching these ones and more, of course, that we didn't get to talk about. So I guess the question that we have is, you know, why only tech firms? You know, it seems like uh, it's uh, in vogue today to have incubators for food manufacturing startups for tourism operators and a host of other sectors. Why is Propel kind of focused itself on only tech firms. Uh, is that limiting in, in any way? I, I think given that tech touches almost every industry today, it's in fact very, very broad in the companies that we can support. I think as a region, we're not necessarily big enough to have niche accelerators. 
there's a few, you know, the Vershuren Center in Cape Breton, they're very focused on life sciences. That's very appropriate. It requires specific um, infrastructure to support those kind of companies and the research that goes with it. Um, but I think what we are very proud of in our region is that we do provide a very wide generalist based for companies to really get off the ground if they're in insurance or you know, ag tech or ed tech, they can really get a good start here. They can have access to non-dilutive funding here. Hopefully they're gonna get more access to angel investment if we can cross the finish line on the Atlantic investment bubble. There's excellent VC funding here in the region. And when they get to a certain level, building bridges to the rest of the world is important for us to do as an, as an ecosystem for the purposes of two things. I always see it as where's the next, uh, capital and customers. So that's where the niche comes in that will probably be beyond what we will see in the next in the near future in Atlantic Canada because of our size alone. Yeah, you mentioned the Versharon uh, Center in Cape Breton. I mean, they're doing some excellent work. And by the way, I think that's a that's a group that we need to talk to, David, for sure. Mm -hmm. But are there other incubators across the region that are doing maybe a wider mandate kinds of things than just tech? Can you mention some of them that, that you know of? Absolutely. So, and a lot of them have a generalist approach. So, and the folks that, that I would work with on a regular basis. So um, Startup Zone has a new CEO in place, Cheryl McCauley, and they're very clear that their door is open to entrepreneurs. So whether you're starting a bakery or a dog walking business or a tech business, their doors are open, come in, let's help support that journey from a tech perspective they part, we partner together. We're going to help support that. Cheryl's very clear. She doesn't want to repeat things that are already easily accessible to that founder. So let's leverage the best of both worlds where they can help them on the ground. They are the front door, the front window, if you will, for the founders themselves. And a lot of founders love to come to a physical space. Propel doesn't offer that. So we're very fortunate that a lot of folks do have a physical space. Volta is a great example as well, the Genesis Center, I believe, has launched something that's more focused on energy in the oil space. Um, so there's a, an opportunity, obviously, that plays to the strength and skills within Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, we see Planet Hatch. Planet Hatch does a fantastic job in welcoming new Canadians and having uh, early stage programming for people who are new to Canada, even just to help culturally adjust to doing business here and let along building the skills to build out a business. Um, there is Venn in Moncton that has some later stage programming and some early stage programming. Um, I'm uh, probably leaving out some Genesis, Planet Hatch, Volta, and Ovacorp also has their own set of um, funding. There's also uh, Ignite based in Yar uh, Yarmouth that's focused on rural areas specifically with you know physical spaces. We can tap into rural as well, but they're they're offering a physical space, which can be incredibly important. So there's a variety of, of accelerators and incubators in the region. The, the focus and niche is not incredibly robust in terms of we have a dedicated accelerator for um, supply chain AI startups. Like it's We're not large enough to have that kind of niche, but we are absolutely good enough to get a companies to a certain stage where them entering a very niche accelerator outside of Atlantic Canada is a perfect next step. So Catherine, 
you discussed your funding model earlier. I, I would suggest most of the incubators and accelerators in the region are primarily relying on government funding support, maybe not all of them. Um, Don and I are big. We, we believe government should have a role in economic development. Uh, so that's we've talked about that a lot, but we do like to see return on investment. We want to see effective leveraging of taxpayer dollars to support economic development. Don, I would say, is a little more cranky than me on that. Uh, but why should government support these organizations such as yours? You touched on that a little bit earlier, but can you expand on that for what's the case or the ROI for government support on these uh, these uh, uh, incubators and accelerators? Absolutely. I, I think it's critical, the role of government within ecosystems like in the tech space. It's been repeated on many global stages around the world, from Silicon Valley to Tel Aviv to Melbourne, they've all decided, their governments have all decided, we are going to invest and build a tech ecosystem. That is possible. And it is, I guarantee, a lot easier than building an oil rig or, or a mine. It, 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 the, the investment has unlimited upside if the ecosystem is really nurtured and, and built, built correctly. Um, and we have right now sort of a growth flywheel. The government investments in our region have really started to deliver results. And we've even at Propel started to track our own ROI, if you will, our own output very differently. So governments, all of our funding partners track demographics very carefully. That's an important part of it. So how many are new Canadians? How many female founders? Are they all educated? In this space, they really all are <laughs> quite an educated population. Uh, to sort of contribute in a, in a technical team. Um, and But what we also look at is what is the skills development by the end of our program? So the fact that they can shorten their sales cycles by, you know, sometimes 40%, they can increase their contract value by, in some cases, they can double while they're with us. And their employee, their employee base is doubling while they're with us. So they start with three or four founders and they're leaving our, our own program with eight full-time employees. That's economic impact in itself. They will all have raised nearly a million dollars by the time they're at the end of our program. And if they haven't raised it, they're often raising within six months. That capital is a variety of non-dilutive funding that is you know, of great access in our region, a little bit of angel funding, which we hope we're gonna get better at, but certainly some institutional funding uh, we hope more of it will come from outside of the region, but we're at the stage that our founders are at. Uh, they are poised for investment in a very, very big way. So there's money coming into the region. There's employment driven by the founders that we're serving. There's inherent risk to it, no doubt. We're going to serve close to 100 companies in this fiscal year. They don't all come through the our program in completion because as we said earlier, they may invalidate that there's a market to be served there, but we hope they'll come back with a new idea and work through and take that to fruition where they're hiring, they're raising capital. And there's a lot, obviously, you know, I'm speaking to people who know this better than I do, that the economic impact of that is incredible and has an unlimited upside at the end of the day. So turning a bit to the bigger picture, um, you have talked about Atlantic Canada as a farm for baby unicorns. Now, you just ruled out farming as one of your targeted sectors, and I didn't hear you mention fantasy as a targeted sector. So what do you mean when you say a farm for baby unicorns? I mean, 
I would love Atlantic Canada to be recognized as a place to come, move to, to build very powerful, impactful technology companies. We are already seeing companies solving global problems from right here in Atlantic Canada. And we have the right ingredients. We have amazing universities that are feeding a lot of the talent uh, that we need. And talent is something we should definitely talk about because it's still a bit of a uh, problem that needs to be solved. We have amazing accelerators all that are very accessible all across our region. We have amazing mentorship, you know, programs like CDL or even just how friendly people are here. People will take a call with just about anybody to help support them on their journey. That's quite unique, actually. Um, and, I, and I think there's a big opportunity to, se- to secure early funding. So from pre-seed to seed to series A funding, that is available here. When we hit a series A level, we need to be building bridges outside of the region to bring in more um, capital to fuel the growth beyond a series A funding in many cases. Um, And, you know, I I can't preach to the choir here, but if we have a hundred baby unicorns, so, and let's for conversation say it's a company that's valued at $50 million. The impact of that is that they've probably secured they have about five, anywhere from five to $15 million in revenue. They've probably got about 25 full-time employees that are all earning around $100,000 each. So, you know, payroll alone for 100 of those is like $250 million a year. <laughs> um, if you think about some just basic math like that. So if we are able, and, and the, the word baby unicorn is nothing more complicated than it's just a focus point so that people have to do very little sort of brain gymnastics to figure out what that means. Unicorns is a fantastic goal, but let's have a smarter first step and build a whole farm of baby unicorns. Unicorns will inevitably happen, but let's really nurture the bottom of our pyramid because we are inherently an early stage ecosystem. So let's nurture it, get really good at it, connect some of the dots a little bit better and smarter within our ecosystem to drive better results. For our listeners, just to define unicorn, uh, that's uh, that's uh, um, a company that gets to a billion dollars in value. Is that right? Valuation, yeah. They have a valuation of a billion dollars, correct? Yeah, we, we've had a few of those already in this region, obviously. So. We it's, have. Yeah, and uh, as um, John Risley said not that long ago, David, look for right. more in in his sector for sure. So it's yeah. very exciting. Uh, David and I, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about the future of rural Atlantic Canada. We know that the larger urban centers in the region are doing well. Like you take, you know, Halifax and Moncton, probably among the fastest growing uh, urban centers in Canada. So, you know, that's working out really very well. Uh, some of the smaller urban uh, areas, especially in places like northern uh, New Brunswick and uh, outside, uh, you know, metropolitan Halifax, uh, you know, are struggling a little bit. Um, and, of, of course, rural areas are under a great pressure uh, from population decline, especially, and people moving away. I, I think with Propel's virtual model, that levels the playing field for rural entrepreneurs somewhat. Uh, I think that that's a really, that's an important uh, asset. Are, are you getting uh, any uptake from rural entrepreneurs? 
We sure are. And you nailed it on the head. It, it levels the playing field, accessibility to entrepreneurial support. And, and you know, Doug Jones is, is driving that as well with his Ignite program in Nova Scotia. Um, all you need is a Wi-Fi connection. <laughs> and, mm. you know, I know that's not perfect everywhere in our particular region, but, you know, we've had a, a recent uh, founder join from St. Anthony, Newfoundland and Labrador. She has the most incredible story. She's a singer by trade. She's been a fisherwoman for 20 years. She's going to take her singing talents into the technical space and start a company that, you know, she's exploring how do I enable folks to build their own lyrics and, and you know, sell that service globally. Um, we've got others in Cape Breton. We've got others in rural, uh, rural parts of New Brunswick. I've just had my team members send me a list and there's about 20 folks 25 companies. I would say half of them are within the last year. Some are current and within the last year who are in rural areas and up to, up to 25 or more recent grads. So fortunately, you know, we are definitely seeing as long as there's a Wi-Fi connection, they can access our, our services, our coaches, our guests, fireside chats. And, you know, just to put a cherry on top of that, I've been in this role for about a year and a half. I have had two in-person meetings. That's it. It's not critical anymore to meet face-to-face. -face. So it might be if you're raising around, your investors may want to meet you once at least. And we'll let the investors, you know, dictate those terms. But it's not required to be in downtown Halifax or downtown, you know, in Silicon Valley or in Toronto or in London. You can run a successful startup from having a beautiful view of one of our beautiful oceans in any of our provinces, as long as you have a Wi-Fi connection. I just want to follow up on that because uh, clearly for young, for the younger generation in particular, uh, economic opportunity is what, you know, is the determining factor in where people want to or decide to live. Um, are you seeing uh, green shoots of opportunity for the new next generation of entrepreneurs, younger people, especially in rural Atlantic Canada, that will allow them to remain in the communities where, you know, they were born and brought up? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we've got a, there's a woman who's in our program now, her company is called Warrior Tech, and she has a technology that supports craft breweries. How many craft breweries have popped up in rural areas within our region in the last decade? A lot. So my, my sense is that she has a huge market to serve, but she's coming at it from a technical angle. And I, actually, I don't even know where she's located, but she is going to be serving a lot of opportunities that are all over our, our beautiful region. I also think about it very selfishly as a, as a parent. I have two children. I want them to say, yeah, I can grow up in this region, but I don't have to leave to have a robust career. I want them to be able to see you can live in the rural area. My, you know, they visit my parents, their grandparents who are in Bath, New Brunswick. You know, it's a population of 600. If they want to move there with their career and their laptops, that they can do that. Um, and so selfishly, you want them to go explore the world, but have all the opportunities to choose where they live based on a lifestyle they want. Where you live matters more than ever. Um, and as long as you've got a Wi-Fi connection, you can make the decision based on work-life balance, where your family is, not where the concrete jungle demands that you need to be to have a certain career. 
Catherine, I, one of the things that's preoccupied me over the last 20 years has been where do these ambitious tech entrepreneurs actually come from? They don't just come out of the woodwork. Do they come out of, you know, they got experience in a large financial firm and then they come out of that firm. We think about the examples around BlackBerry and Nortel and so on historically, and just how many startups that, that came out of those big firms. And then we talk about universities as incubators of, of, of uh, entrepreneurial ideas based on the IP that they de develop when they're in the university. Uh, immigrants, you know, if you look at uh, this region, but if you look across the country, immigrants tend to make up a higher share of tech entrepreneurs. You know, the first generation, at least in New Brunswick, the first generation of successful tech entrepreneurs were mostly white males. Uh, you know, the Marcel Lebrun and Alston mm -hmm. and the whole, all of them. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being a white male. I'm a white male. Don's a white male. But we would like to see more diversity there. So where, can you answer the question where the, where the ambitious tech entrepreneurs are coming from these days, the ones you see? Sure. Uh, and I'm happy to report it's from all over the place. Um, we do have white males. We welcome white males. <laughs> that's that's not a problem. But we we are seeing in Propel, 50% of our founders are new Canadians. 50%. That's a big number, one we're very proud of. And they come, in many cases, through the university system. The universities play an important role in attracting talent and students initially from other parts of the world. And hopefully... You know, it should be our goal to keep all of them. And, is, you know, especially those, of course, we're interested in, if they're interested in taking that entrepreneurial leap, it should be our mission to keep them and support them and ensure that they're grounded here. We have, but they're not all from the university. We see experts who have lived, a, had a really nice career anywhere from the trucking industry to, you know, the health space to the academic space. And what they've seen and experienced are problems they can no longer stand. Uh, so they're solving them, which is fantastic. So they come in, they're, let's call them in their mid-40s, just for conversation. They're experienced individuals. They have families. They've never been an entrepreneur, but they know their particular sector and the supply chain that goes in and around it inside and out. So they're beautifully set up to solve these problems. We also are drawing, and a final point on that, we're also attracting more women. We have 40, about 42% of our companies have female founders. I was very pleased about three weeks we launched our first cohort that actually happened to have more women than men founders. Uh, it was a smaller cohort, but I, it was still a moment in time saying we've never done this before. Um, so the diversity that we see within Propel is truly inspiring. And, and you hear it when we have our peer meetups and, and they have, or they have what we call a founder real talk. We had one yesterday with Adam Keating from Colab where all the founders could really ask about those, the journeys and they are all so different. So the historical journeys of, you know, the Q1 Labs and Radiant 6 folks are all continue to serve as inspiring journeys. And now we're seeing this beautiful evolution of diversity coming into our front door and, you know, hopefully that will continue to precipitate um, the impact in our region. Fantastic. Catherine, you mentioned something that I, I just wanted to follow up on because uh, it's, a, it's a point that I've been making for some time. You said that 50% of your uh, current group are uh, immigrants. Mm -hmm. I think that this is a really important point to emphasize. Um, and, 
you know, I, I remember doing a study for the AAU a number of years ago where we talked to, uh, you know, Canadian-born uh, university students and foreign-born students. We asked them the propensity to be interested in starting their own business. You know, the international students, I believe I might have this number wrong, but the magnitude is close. They were more than five times more likely to be interested in starting a business. And and one of the points that uh, David and I have made countless times in our podcast to date is that, uh, you know, the old attitudes that existed in Atlantic Canada when the population was stagnant have really been turned on their ear by the, you know, uh, by having more immigrants come to this region. They bring a lot of things that we've been missing for a while, you know, a, a little bit more drive, certainly an interest in entrepreneurism, uh, you know, highly motivated, highly motivated. Um, and, and, and it's really, it's really been great for our region to have uh, this new group of people coming in to challenge the status quo, which, which it, by the way, most of my career, I, I looked at the resistance to change in our region. It was very, you know, spectacular. <laughs> we, we led the country in resistance to change. You know, we were all for change as long as it didn't change anything. And, uh, you know, that's what I found. And, and, and immigrants have changed that attitude in a dramatic way. You must see that yes. every day in your job. I do. On, on two fronts, uh, comments I want to make, their appetite for risk is insatiable. They're comfortable with ambiguity. Because sadly, very sadly, in a previous life, they faced sometimes dire situations, life or death. You know, right. fleeing their country because of a war-torn or very politically tense situation where their biggest worry here is if I don't work hard enough, this business might fail. You know, we don't right. have that perspective right. if you were born here. If you were born in Canada, you already won the lottery in a big way. Um, and folks who are choosing to be here are here, you know, to build their lives the way they want to without the risk and potentially even terror that they lived through. So supporting their journey is, I mean, I think uh, we can learn and continue to be inspired from that. Hook your wagons to it if you can, um, because they're going to be some of the best people you can hire. They're going to, they, they do work hard. They take risks and being able to support that journey, like our coaches support that journey every single day is, is phenomenal. The speed at which this pace, uh, this industry moves or this ecosystem moves is also sort of a point um, around that I want to make. So a lot of the jobs we're trying to attract, um, Don and David, some of, so if we think five years out, a lot of the underpinning jobs that are going to be required to support the talent needed in these tech firms, they don't exist today. So we will need to do two things, continue to attract really talented um, new Canadians from all over the world, and we will need to continue to train those new Canadians. So some, sometimes their front door is the university to begin with. Sometimes it's, no, I'm going to, I've spent 10 years in a career in, you know, Croatia and I'm going to move here because I have a wonderful skill set to offer and I want to have a better life for my family. Um, so, so really keeping up with the pace of change is going to be forever important. It's a bit of an urgency for us. So to your point around resistance to change, we have no choice but to change rapidly in this space. Uh, so, and, and I think a lot of our new Canadians already have the appetite for the fast moving, let's embrace the ambiguity, make the most of it, 
take every learning opportunity I have and, and see if we can make something of this. I think there's a beautiful learning we can all continue to benefit from there. Those are all great points. Uh, thank you. Last question. Uh, we asked you last time if you were optimistic about the region's future. So this time we wanted to end with, uh, you know, what are the red flags that you see uh, in the business uh, that you're in that maybe might derail our progress over the next five to 10 years or more? So two thoughts there. I think we have made such progress in our ecosystem, but there's still work to be done. Um, I, I think our ability to connect the dots very deliberately to optimize the talent is, is critical. So for example, you know, speaking with Jeff Larson recently, and he's very focused on supporting and commercializing uh, masters and PhD and sort of postdoc students. Those individuals who may have come from another country and they're choosing to study here have exceptional, let's say, inventions and IP and research under their belt. But we can't expect them to become ambitious, uh, courageous entrepreneurs overnight where they live in a world of ambiguity. Just think about their skill sets. As a researcher, it is fact-based, evidence-based, detail-oriented work. So I think there's an opportunity for us to pair really smart individuals who have IP protected research with entrepreneurial disciplined individuals who can really have this really important talent matchmake as the foundation of a great startup. I had a conversation just before our call with an individual who said, you know, I have experience as an entrepreneur. I'm interested in being potentially an angel investor. They have a really interesting background. And my first question was, do you have another startup in you? Because if, <laughs> if the answer is yes, then this individual is the perfect type of individual to pair with an academic researcher who doesn't want to take on the risky, on, risky entrepreneurial role. So talent connections alone within our region is something we can all do together to, to really deliver better results. And I think the biggest red flag that I see right now, and I've seen it very loudly in the last few weeks for some reason, is our is the war on talent. Um, it's no joke. And the frustrating thing for me is that we're talking about the war and less about aggressive solutions needed to win it. And I think our biggest, we have an opportunity to potentially not win the war on talent. I mean, that may be, feel unrealistic, but we can win the battles that matter. People are smart and educated and have great experience. They want to live in a better place. And this is that better place. I don't have to tell anyone listening to this podcast that this is an amazing place to live. So I think our ability to unite and get articulate about the talent we need to hire here in droves is critical for the stability of this ecosystem and because it will infuse the growth. Without it, we risk losing those companies that have set up shop here. And I'll give you a, a sad indicator. Twice I've heard this in the past two weeks that a company has identified the senior level, mid to senior level tech talent they needed from somewhere else let's call it Ontario. And they said, yeah, we'll move to PEI or New Brunswick, wherever it was. And then they found out they couldn't get a doctor and they said no. So back to the role of governments, governments are critical in fueling this ecosystem from an early stage where it needs the funding the most. 
but their role is also important to set up the infrastructure required for the growth we need to continue to support it and make it thrive. Well, Catherine, you know, this has been a great conversation. I think you've provided uh, a little educational session for people who don't understand the sector that you're in. Um, and I'm going to give a little promo to you. Anybody out there is looking to start a business, please contact Catherine. <laughs> so, thank you. We've been delighted to have them. And, and thank you both. It's a true, true honor to support the founders in their journey. And we get to see a lot of their ups and downs and most importantly, wins. Um, and it's a, it's a fantastic, very connected, global and an amazing place to live. So listen to Don. <laughs> if you're interested in starting a company, come our way. There's also a lot of great accelerators that may support you as well. So it's a true family here and we'd welcome anyone. Well, thanks again for joining us on the Insights pod- Podcast, Catherine. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.